Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Monday Night Live. I'm absolutely privileged today to have Damien Lewis, the uh, famous author on the show, and we're going to be talking about his books. But first of all, I'm going to read you out his CV. Damien is a number one best-selling author whose books have been translated into over 40 languages worldwide. For decades, he worked as a war and conflict reporter for the world's major broadcasters, reporting across Africa, South America, the Middle East and the Far East, winning numerous awards. We'll ask you about that later. His books include the World War II classics Churchill's Secret Warriors, Hunting the Nazi Bomb, SAS Ghost Patrol, SAS Italian Job and Churchill's Great Escapes. A dozen of his books have been made or are being made into movies or TV dramas and have been adapted for plays for the stage. He raises considerable support and funds for charitable concerns connected with his writing. Damien, thanks so much for joining Monday Night Live. We really appreciate that. How did you get into writing? Yeah, it's a great question. So completely by accident, um, I was... um, I've been reporting from basically war zones for about 20 years, maybe a bit longer. And um, I'm trying to keep the story short. I I ended up being rushed to hospital. So from diagnosis to the operating table in 24 hours um, to have spinal surgery um, at L1, L2, if you know where that is, the middle of the back. Um, And the prognosis was not good. I mean, it was, you know, you might not live and you're, highly likely to come out of this operation um, with severe disabilities, quadriplegic, paraplegic, whatever it might you know, be. So um, I'm a walking miracle, and that's no exaggeration. I'm very lucky to be alive and very lucky to have most of my physical faculties still um, working. Um, but, the, but the reason why I mention that is because I then had to have a year in recovery, pretty much. Um, and two things happened. The first is that... Um, this can sound really strange I woke up from the addiction of being a war reporter I think when we discussed this uh, uh, last week I said to you and again it it will sound really perhaps bizarre but the reason why being a war reporter is so addictive is because you never feel more alive than when someone's tried to take your life away from you so if you've just been shot at and the person's missed uh, it's that is the biggest adrenaline buzz on earth it's a really strange thing to say but it's absolutely true that's why being a war reporter is such an addictive um pastime and i was addicted completely um and it's so addictive that you actually end up being at home nowhere else but at, in a war zone so in normal society you can't be at home anymore it's very 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 dislocating and, and it's a very extreme kind of existence but during that year i realized that and i realized also how dark my mindset had become because I'd seen so many terrible things and that all seeps into you and at the same time about three months after the operation a publisher approached me and they'd heard about the story I was working on as a a reporter about a a modern day slave in fact in the Sudan and uh, they said you know would you be willing to write that story as a book Um, and I'd never ever even envisaged doing anything of the sort Uh, but I, I had nothing better or I could physically do so I said yeah I'll give it a go so um so I wrote that book um and it was called Slave and it became a number one international bestseller and was made into a movie um so um I kind of 
realized I was potentially reasonably okay at this. Um, and I didn't stop completely going to crazy places, but I stopped doing the really insanely dangerous things um, and have increasingly done so. So I pretty much don't do any of it anymore. Um, I didn't have, you know, a, a family uh, in terms of wife and children to concern myself with. When I was a war reporter, it, the two things are not made to coincide, as you can probably imagine. Um, so my life changed. That was the watershed moment. And then um, shortly after that, I I was back in the Sudan, actually, and I happened to have a, a, a former um, New Zealand SAS guy as my kind of mind, but kind of cameraman as well. Lovely guy called Mike Mawini, who's really a really good friend now. And he told me about this SAS mission. Uh, in Sierra, Le Sierra Leone in West Africa in 2000, where they went in to rescue 17 British soldiers held hostage by this 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 really brutal rebel gang. And he gave me chapter and verse on that story and introduced me to some of the hostages and some of those involved. And then I wrote that book. And so that's kind of that started me on the path. Wow. And how did you have the discipline to write books? Because there's a few people on here who've written books. We found it really, really tough. And once we finished, we thought, perhaps never again. <laughs> but you seem to knock out uh, two or three a year, don't you? Uh, I generally, I, I, I was just checking my contractual situation today, actually. And I am, I'm contracted through to 2025, um, I think. Um, so I, and that's two a year. Um, well, the the process, the procedure. I mean, if you're writing nonfiction, or so if you're writing a World War Two fiction like that one there, for example, the amount of research involved is is enormous. So the research takes longer than the actual writing. But when it gets to the writing stage, um, I call it the total immersion process. So I. Um, I go in at the start and I don't come out until the end and I don't I pretty much don't do anything else so I'm not writing at the moment when I am writing I'm grumpy and antisocial and my family know it and they leave me well alone they know that my I so I, we live in what was were two rural houses in Dorset then they were converted into a Wesleyan chapel and then converted back into one house so I'm sat in what was the altar of the chapel so I write from the altar of the chapel. So the peace and the kind of creativity is, and, you know, the family know they, they this is sacrosanct territory. They're not allowed in. So, and, and when people ask me, you know, what's the secret to, to writing, um, you know, bestsellers, um, it, it's really, the, the answer is, is, is time at a desk. And it sounds really dull, but it is. And, and the more time you can bear to spend at your desk and the more you can immerse yourself in the story and the characters and the locations and all the things that bring a story alive, the more um, the more you will bring that story home alive. And that's exactly what I do. So, you know, I, I, I live the stories that I write and I, unashamedly so, you know, I'm a historian on, on some levels, but I bring history alive very much. So people read my history books and they, they say, and this is what I want them to say, I picked it up and two days later I was finished. I couldn't put it down. And now my wife wants to leave me because I was reading it until four <laughs> in the morning. And we were on holiday. So, you know, that's kind of that's hitting the bullseye. Um, not the fact the wife wants to leave, obviously, but the fact that it's been so compelling. 
So that's uh, that's absolutely key. And the other thing that's, that I think is key as well, um, and I do say this to people. Um, so I sometimes I write. I don't have one here, but I, sometimes I write a co-authorship. Done quite a lot of them actually. So I, I might write a book with a soldier, for example. Um, um, and I've had lots and lots of those kind of individuals, you know, with me in my study, um, talking them through their story, often talking about things they've never spoken to anyone else before, not even their wives and their children, you know, and I've often had them here in tears and the trauma was very obvious to see. But the point I'm making is they can talk to me and they know that I understand and I've been there in a very, very similar situation. OK, I've been there with a camera or a pen but actually you're both facing the same fears and traumas and, and a camaraderie and brotherhood that, you know, whether you're a reporter or a soldier. So I can talk to them on that level. And then when it comes to writing this kind of material, I can relate to what people felt and how they acted on the ground. So distilling that down, you write best about what you know. You write best about what you know, especially when you're trying to write narrative non-fiction which really brings a story about alive if you write about what you know that comes through from the pages mm. now you mention fiction and you mention non-fiction you seem to me when i've read your three books that there's a lot of uh, non-fiction in there but is there fiction as well i mean this is the book that took me because my dad was in north africa and then he followed up to uh, monte casino which you write about in here so i was really into it and i couldn't put it down for two days and Godfrey Godfrey lent me this and I've still got it because he's not having it back after <laughs> after, after that but uh, this this seems fact not non-fiction not uh, fiction yeah no that's a true story but and, and I do write fiction you know some fiction but but the, the thing about it is where the two kind of coincide is that if you're writing compelling narrative non-fiction and by narrative I mean it's real this is real storytelling the same factors apply. You've still got a cast of characters. You've still got a set of locations. You still need to bring the story alive. You still have a, a, a time scale you need to wrap it up within. So I, I, I and you still need to deliver dialogue in a way that is utterly compelling. So, you know, I think to my mind, the best writers of nonfiction, of, of, of narrative history, use those 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 techniques that craft of fiction to bring those stories alive that's not saying you don't you know every word that i put into one of my my true stories like this one here every word in here which is dialogue was actually said by somebody at the time it's just how you knit all that together um and they you know and and that goes to the heart of being a a, a good creative writer, whether it be in fiction or non-fiction. The thing about fiction is it's interesting. You would think fiction is easier. And in many ways it is because you can make up whatever you want, but you can go anywhere with fiction. The plot and the narrative and the characters and the scope is potentially endless. It's universal. It, it, it's as big, big or greater than the universe. You can invent worlds, whereas with a non-fiction, a true story, you have a set um, you know, have a set number of facts and you've got to stick to those. So in some ways, nonfiction is easier. And do you visit the locations? Because the second book I'm going to come on to, which I was taken, taken with, was Hunting the Nazi Bomb. 
and the fact that they really did have uh, almost have an atomic bomb uh, and working on it in in Norway. And so you 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 have you, you must have a lot of air miles. Yeah, if you can, obviously it's great to visit the location. So that book there, um, you know, going to Norway was key. It's it's set in the Hardanger Vida. I probably pronounced it wrong. It's the it's the huge Norwegian frozen plateau where uh, these um, they're actually uh, uh, operators of the Special Operations Executive, so Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare. This outfit that he formed at the start of the Second World War to do all the things that on paper you're not allowed to do officially in warfare. So assassination, sabotage, uh, black operations, bribery, corruption, money laundering, all these things, which the SOE were the masters of. That was an SOE mission. Um, and if you can get to the location and you're writing a true story, it's great to go there just because it brings it alive for you. And then you can take all that, you know, take all of that real experience back with you and then inject it into the narrative you're writing. But sometimes you can't. So, for example, again, with this book here, you know, parts of it are set in um, North Africa where you wouldn't necessarily be safe to go to at the moment. You know, um, so that's a movable feast and i'll give you another example you know classic example with this book um i wrote this and researched it largely in in during lockdown and so i couldn't get to the archives or most of the locations in the book because you couldn't travel so i actually had to use a researcher in america a researcher in france and a researcher in germany and one in london to go into all the archives for me and then send me as digital material all the research so Yes, if you can get there, it's it's a great thing to do. Sometimes you just can't. Wow, and um, so when you were um, when you were in Norway, that's quite a story, isn't it? I'm I was just thinking about classified information when you were saying saying that, Damien. Wasn't this some of this classified that's in your story, or has it been released? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So you would have thought that all the files from World War Two would have been released and made public well it's not true so they in the uk and i know it's different in the states but in the uk that they're, they're uh, closed under a certain set so it can be the 50 year rule the 70 year rule the 75 year rule the 80 year rule the 100 year rule or more so there are still files from the second world war archival files that are closed to this day but the interesting thing is if you are, because you have the right to ask for the file to be opened, and if you do that, the people who closed the file for 100 years, let's say a Second World War file, are generally sadly no longer with us. So generally speaking, the board that exists at the London archives to deal with these kind of requests has very little way of finding out why it was originally closed for that period of time. Does that make sense? Because no one's left around who actually did that. So I've only ever had one file not opened. Only one has never been opened. And that was actually a, it was a secret intelligence service file. And sometimes those files aren't opened because there are individuals in the file who are still with us, still alive, and they don't want to expose former agents. But generally speaking, you can get pretty much everything open that you asked for. And I have. I've had lots of files opened. And, you know, that's an amazing feeling. If you can imagine it, you walk into the Q archive and they present you with this file and you are the first person to see it since it was closed at the end of the Second World War. Um, a really, really fascinating experience I had in the Q archives was 
my, my, my researcher who worked in the Q archives for 35 years, a chap called Simon Fowler, lovely guy, brilliantly dry sense of British humour. He emailed me about I don't know, 10 years ago and said, would you like to see Hitler's will? <laughs> Typical of him. And I was like, Simon, silly question. <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't. Of course I would, Simon. Where is it? He said, well, actually, it's in the National Archives. It's rather hard to get to see. He said, you have to be guarded and invigilated, and they've got it in a special room, but I can organise it. So, yeah, I went in and had a perusal of Hitler's will because, you know, I, I actually just found that the most extraordinary concept that Hitler made a will. I mean, what was in there? Did he say sorry? Did he accept that anything that he'd done was egregiously, terribly evil and wrong? No. Hitler's will is basically a it, it's obviously written close to his um, his death. And it's basically a call for, you know, the German people to rise up and the werewolves, as they were called, the German resistance to launch another global campaign to to, you know, perpetuate the glories of the Reich. I mean, it's a, not a word of apology or or or, you know, hindsight is a good thing. Yeah, it was an extraordinary document. And when you actually touch that. And you think about what history you're holding in your hand. That yeah, th th that's that's a pretty extraordinary experience. Was that the original will? Was that a copy of it? There are there are about um, I think half a dozen copies. This is one of them, and there's right. there's various copies held in various archives, which are quite hard to get to see, mm. as you can probably imagine. Sure, sure. Well, while while we're on um, the Germans and World War Two. My mum was bombarded by V1 and V2 weapons uh -huh. um, living in London. It was the scariest thing ever, she was telling me. And um, But you said that Hitler nearly had an atomic bomb to put on a V2 weapon. Well, that's what well, you wrote in, in, in this book. Yeah, so, so the, you know, Nazi Germany at Peenemann, their, um, their island research facility uh, in the Baltic, were, you know, that's where they developed the V1 and the V2, um, using uh, slave labour, uh, you know, from the concentration camps. Um, they, they drew up plans, and you can, the plans are available in the National Archives, thank God. They drew up plans for a V2 to be tipped with probably a radiological device so not a nuclear weapon you understand the difference a radiological device is a dirty bomb still no. extremely unpleasant you know and and we were so concerned in the uk for example and in the states actually which is fascinating when you think about it because actually the v obviously the v2 didn't have the ability to reach the us but the, they were working on the american bomber uh, to get to the states and so we were so concerned that when the v2s were dropping on London. We had top secret teams with Geiger counters out on the streets testing the craters for um, for radiation. So, you know, the, the Nazi nuclear program, they got a head start on us before the war, at the start of the war. We obviously won the race in terms of the Manhattan, Pro Manhattan Project, but the, the ability to fit a V2 with a radiological weapon would have been a total game changer and if nothing else it would have possibly made the allies sue for peace it would have possibly if they could have dropped them on the d-day uh you know areas where the, where they were mustering the d-day troops for the d-day landings it could have possibly scuppered the d-day landing so um you know thank god those sabotage operations that we sent in to 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 occupied europe to sabotage the german nuclear program 
were successful. I mean, it's someone said, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was. I think it was um, William Stevenson, the spy master, Canadian spy master, said that they did nothing less than save the world. That's those guys who went in to sabotage the Nazi nuclear program. And I, I could not agree with him more. So were they the, the were they the people you were talking about that was 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 skiing over uh, watersheds in um, in Norway to get to it? I, it was um, it was pretty gripping um, that part of the book. Yeah, so we sent in um, we sent in two missions to destroy the heavy water um, facility in Norway, which was a key part of the Nazi nuclear program, and the first wasn't a special operations executive team. It was actually, it was under kind of SOE command, but it was actually a team of commandos. And they flew in in these gliders. So they were towed in by Halifax aircraft and released to land on the Hard Hardanger Vida and then approach the target and, and, and destroy it. All of them died. The gliders crash landed, all of them were killed. And even those who were captured injured were then finished off by uh, those uh, German forces who captured them. And so the second team that went in was much more covert. They were parachuted in. They were Norwegians. So they'd left Norway when Norway fell to forces of Nazi Germany, came to the UK, trained in the UK and Scotland, and then recruited into SOE. And so they then went in, parachuted in, lived on the Hardanger Vida for three months in this hellish winter, hellish winter, unbelievably tough conditions. And then they skied in and eventually they carried out the successful um, sabotage of the heavy water plant. And then after that, some of them stayed behind. And then when the Germans tried to move the, the heavy water that survived on a ferry and then by rail to Germany itself, they blew up the ferry. So extraordinary um, tenacity and just the survival story itself is 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 mind blowing. Unbelievable. I saw the film about that, didn't I? That wasn't yeah. it was anything to do with you, the film about the ferry that was blown up in mid mid fjord. Well, the, the, the movies, the Telemark Heroes, of course, which isn't, you know, wholly accurate, but it's not it's not a bad movie. There's been several documentaries made about the um, the blowing up of the ferry. And there was one made recently where they sent down a deep sea, a, a deep water a diving uh, vehicle to actually retrieve one of the barrels of heavy water and check what the contents were and whether they were still, you know, kind of um, usable. That was the fascinating documentary, but that's what they did. They sent all of the, all of those barrels of heavy water on the, on the Norsk hydro ferry to the bottom of lake of the lake and put them out of the reach of the Germans for the war. Absolutely amazing. That absolutely amazing. Now tell me when you do your research, you said by your right arm there, they are all your files just for one book. Um, how do you handle all that? And how do you handle the researchers in French, German, uh, English, etc. when you're sitting in your study, keeping away from COVID? <laughs> yeah, so um, getting all the research in is not the hard, I mean, you know, it, 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 you have to manage it, but that's not the challenge. It's actually then making the research usable so you can actually you know mesh it into a book like that the flame of resistance for example and the way i do that so yeah i mean i have you know any number of these files there's 14 for one book so it's it's done with with paper and files and i each file has tabs and each reference then is 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 input into a digital document so I can find any single source at any one time 
in the file. But to give you a, an indication, um, that book, Josephine Baker, is um, I think it's 120,000 words. Um, the actual plan for that book was 100,000 words. So the plan itself was almost as long as the book. So that's that's the kind of structure. But then all the source is written in there, if that makes sense. So every time you come to a new part of the of the story, you know exactly where you've got to go to pluck the right file off the shelf to find the material you're looking for. And that's why, as I said, the the research itself takes longer than the writing. Once you're ready to write, um, it, it should lock itself together pretty much, mesh itself together pretty much um, three months. Three months to write it. And that's three yeah. months flat out. Yeah, three months flat out, absolutely. Yeah, six days a week, getting up at, you know, 5.30, at the desk at six, probably, you know, writing through to four in the afternoon. That's the normal schedule. Now, of course, I would be getting up and having coffee breaks and walking around the garden and uh, making a few phone calls in the middle of it because I'm that sort of person. Uh, do you do that? The best thing to do, if you want the honest answer, is you turn the phone off you put it in another room um, and you lock yourself away. That's the truth. You know, sometimes I'll get up and I'll act. This is going to sound a bit crazy, but I'll get up and I'll act out scenes in 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 my no. my my study because you've really got to live the story to bring it alive. And to do that, you've got to you've got to forget the outside world. So to give you an example, <laughs> I'll often, you know, go to have lunch with my wife and she'll be talking to me about something and she, and after five minutes she'll say you're not here are you mm. and I'll say I have absolutely no idea what you've just been talking about mm. because I am in the world of the book um with those people you know poised on that glacier to attack you know the Norse Kydro plant or whatever yeah. whatever it might be um that's what in my view what you have to do to really bring these stories alive and it, it doesn't matter whether it's a modern day special forces story or one from world war ii or or earlier it's still the same discipline and process in my view okay that's fantastic by the way you're not the only person whose wife has said to you said to them uh, you're not listening to me for the last last five minutes i'm just going <laughs> to see how many people are smiling on the gallery view i expect <laughs> oh there's a lot of nodding going on here <laughs> Yeah, we've all been uh, in trouble on that one. A um, couple of questions before we wrap up. First, most important question is, as Godfrey and I are going to have lunch with you in a lovely uh, Dorset restaurant, when are you? Um, when do you start writing your next book? Because we're not going to get you for three months, are we? Um, it's a really good question. I, I, not for a while. I, I'm researching at the moment and that takes longer. So just fire some dates at me and we'll get together and uh yeah we'll okay. raise a glass or two <laughs> that will be great secondly i don't know what a dirty bomb is so i su suspect some people on this call doesn't don't know what a dirty bomb is either okay so dirty but if you can imagine getting radiological so radioactive material not a nuclear weapon but but basic radioactive material so for example enriched uranium would be ideal yeah and then you just put that into a into an explosive device in such a way you can scatter it over a, 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 a target area. So if you can imagine a V2 fitted with a, 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 a charge of enriched uranium and an explosive device, that's what we're talking about. Um, it's it's the it's the poor man's nuclear weapon. It's what, you know, bad guys and terrorists the world over want to get their hands on to do bad things in 
in, 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 in densely populated places if you can't get a nuclear weapon. Crikey, and that's, um, that was happening 70 years ago, and uh, goodness knows what people are trying to do now, but we won't ask you that on a, on a recording, because you probably know. <laughs> um, absolutely. Now, have we got any questions in the uh, chat box before I um, wrap up and thank you uh, for it? Let's see. Um, yeah, let's see what we've got. Three months of solid writing. The question is, how long does the editing process take? And I've got a further question. What pressure do you get from your um, your publishers on deadlines? So the uh, editing process um, for me is really quick. Um, so let's say I deliver a manuscript end of July. The book is generally on the shelves end of October. Wow. Uh, it that's that's fast. It's not always like that with publishers, but that's what it is for me. Um, and the process you go through, generally speaking, is you your editor at the publisher gives you his feedback. You action that. Then the copy editor get, does his job. And that's a really key job because the copy editor is a guy who goes through and checks all your spelling and your grammar and does a basic fact check. And my spelling and grammar is awful. So I really do need that. Um, and I have, a, I have a great guy that I work with um, most of the time. So he's we've got a longstanding working relationship. And then you've got proofs, you know, it goes to page proofs, which is typeset, and you check those proofs. One thing I've started doing recently, which is really interesting because it is a way of saving time, is I was asked to read, to record the audio book of that, that book. It's the first time I've ever considered doing so. Normally, I've had, you know, they've, they've used a professional actor. So I did do that book as an audio book. And the great thing was we combined the proofread, my proofread, with me doing the audiobook if that makes sense and it was a really it was a really clever way of doing it because when you're recording the audiobook and you're reading every single word you pay far more attention than you would do trying to sit down and concentrate on reading a manuscript that you've read when you've been writing it and editing it a hundred times before so yeah that was really that's a really great way of doing it if 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 you can combine the two um, so yeah, proofread, and then the rest of it is basically off to printers and putting the book to bed. And there are pressures on these deadlines. Are they uh, jumping up and down, saying where is it, or do they cut you some slack? Uh, they would be, um, but I I hit my deadlines, and I'm not saying that arrogantly, but I just do. Um, you know, I I must be odd. So if I haven't been writing for a while. And that's not very long. It could be like two or three weeks. I start getting withdrawal symptoms. I mean, that, that's the truth. So I have been writing now for probably a month and I'm getting a bit itchy. So, yeah, um, I, I think, you know, um, if people ask me, you know, should I go off and I've got this idea to write this book, should I give up? I say, do not give up the day job. Keep the day job because you don't want to go bankrupt and you have a family to look after and you've got responsibilities. So you've got to start off by doing it in the time you've got available freely. But um, if you have a leaning towards it and if it's something that, look, my job is not a job, it's a passion. You know, I'm, I'm the luckiest man in the world in many ways because what I do is something that I love doing. I mean, I don't ever write a book and not find it immensely, immensely captivating and enjoyable. If you're one of those people for whom that is the case, then you know, it, it's it's there's nothing better. Uh, but you spend an awful lot of time sat in your study on your own, facing a computer screen in your own head, and that's not for most people. 
it's not for most people that's what we say to professional speakers as well and there's some professional speakers on here don't give up your day job if you've got a job that uh, pays the bills and pays the mortgage you can do that on the side or you can do that uh, yeah absolutely later Damien Lewis, thanks for joining us. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube or the Negotiators podcast, can I say this is a fantastic book? And the thing I really was really taken by the the number of references you put in the back. That's uh, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, Damien, will you come back and join us in a few months time and tell us some of those scary stories from the Sudan and from Africa? Um, yeah. We better do that before you start writing the next book, or uh, after you've um, after you've finished. Um, Absolutely, but... yeah, no problem. Of course, okay. I will. Yeah, it's been thank it's you very been much. Very I'm enjoyable. You, I'm putting you on gallery view. Would I ask the uh, members of Monday Night Live to give Davian the usual vote of th thanks in? The normal way that was absolutely fantastic thank you so much will you stay on and answer a few questions off of um off of the uh, of our members yeah of course absolutely. thanks very much indeed if you're watching this on youtube or the negotiators podcast follow damien lewis on twitter on youtube uh and all the other all the usual channels like linkedin and facebook uh, damien lewis thanks for joining us thank you